Beautifully sung, Cheryl. Thank you. That is a great hymn, isn't it? Not really a hymn. What would you call that? A song of exhortation, I think. And uh, potent thoughts put together in those lines. How many of you can remember singing that a long time ago? We'll say, how long? Just a long time. Me too. I like that. Thank you. And thank you for your ministry tonight, all of you. Let's open our Bibles together to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at this text that deals with false teachers again tonight. You remember that Peter's concern in this book is that we grow in Christ. And by growing in Christ, he means more than that we would know more about the Bible or more theology. Not that those things are unimportant. I don't mean that at all. But what he means by growing in Christ is that we become more like Christ. To grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ means that he be seen in our lives more readily. He has given us a pattern for that in chapter 1. You remember that it begins with uh, faith and ends with love and there are all kinds of qualities in between and he says give diligence to add these things to your life because if you do that you'll be growing in Christ and you'll not be unfruitful for God you'll be usable to God in this world and there will be a reward waiting for you uh, by and by but as he talks about growing in Christ, he, he warns us that growing in Christ is not automatic. There are dangers that we face, among them false teachers. He talks about these false teachers in chapter 2. He says that they are those who deceive the people of God. They deny the Son of God. They defame the truth of God. And he reminds us that they face certain doom. Certain judgment will come to false teachers, just as certain deliverance comes to God's people. As he describes the false teachers, he, he first tells us about their character and their conduct. And uh, these words sort of summarize what he says in verses 10 through 14. He says about them in the first place, they are fleshly. They live out the lusts and the desires of their flesh. They're rebellious. They're arrogant, ignorant, immoral, deceitful, and greedy. Just the kind of people you want as your next door neighbor, right? <laughs> the words, the description that Peter uses here is almost without parallel in the New Testament in denouncing a class of people. I mean, he exposes them. He strips them bare. He says exactly what they're like in their character and what they're like in their conduct. He's going to continue telling us about them as we pick it up in verse 15. He does this with pictures and with parables. The pictures come first, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Verse 15 says, For seeking the right way, they, the false teachers, have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for 
A dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Verses 20, 21, and 22 deal with some parables that further describe for us the false teachers. Uh, these verses would probably constitute the most difficult portion of the book of Second Peter. And so we're going to wait till the next time to deal with those and pray that if the Lord please, he might come before we have to deal with them. But uh, tonight we're going to deal with verses 15 through 19, and we're going to examine some pictures of these false teachers. Interesting how he describes them by way of pictures. You'll notice that he sort of draws the line in verse 14 as he describes their character and conduct. And he says, the bottom line is this, accursed children. Accursed children. Literally, it means children of destruction. And it is a Hebrewism, which means it was, it was a Hebrew expression that meant God's curse beyond them. Strong language. He damns them, is what he does. That's strong language from the apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe the mention of the curse that he pronounces on them that brings to mind this first picture. It is a picture from history. A picture from history. Verses 15 and 16. By the way, Peter has drawn upon history previously in the book. You remember in chapter 1, he went back to that historical setting on the Mount of Transfiguration when our Lord was glorified and Peter was there along with James and John, and he tells about that in a few words. In chapter 2, he goes back further than that to the Old Testament. He speaks about the angels that sinned and the days of Noah and how God delivered Noah. And he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, which are not fictional cities. They were real cities that existed in the valley of the plain in which God judged. Uh, at the same time, however, he delivered Lot, the nephew of Abram. And so Peter is used to using history. Now he brings up another figure. It is uh, a man that I have always found enigmatic and mysterious myself. The man Balaam. Balaam. You read about him primarily in Numbers, chapters 22, 23, and 24. Peter just sort of summarizes what happened with Balaam. Uh, he speaks about this man, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, as he puts it. Balaam, this Old Testament man, was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He lived during that period of time when the children of Israel were about to enter the Promised Land. The Moabites were quite upset with the presence of the Israelites. They were intimidated by this 
vast multitude of people who had come up now out of Egypt and wandered through the wilderness and were uh, about to, uh, to set foot into to the uh, land of Canaan. And the Moabites were east and south of there, and they felt very threatened by, by the Israelites. And so Balak, who was the king, sent an emissary, a group of people, to search out this prophet whose name was Balaam. Balaam lived in Mesopotamia, or Aram. It was quite a ways from Moab, but he had a reputation. Balaam was uh, what we might call a prophet for hire. The thing that I find so mysterious about him is that uh, he knew how to get in touch with God, the true God. Warren Wiersbe says about him, he could get messages from God, but he led people away from God. Interesting. Balak said to Balaam, come down here and curse the people of Israel. I'm afraid of them. Well, God said to Balaam, no, no, don't do that. So Balaam sent the messengers back to Balak with the message, no can do, won't be there. So Balak sent another group, a larger group back, and offered Balaam more money and more honor to please come. Well, God saw them coming, of course. And this time, God gave permission to Balaam to say yes. It was not God's directive will. God had already declared that, don't do it. But now, perhaps, is a test of Balaam to expose his heart. God says, go with him. Well, Balaam was all too happy because this meant money. He was going to get rich, be an honorable man because of the king of Moab. And so the next day, he saddled his donkey and headed off for Moab. But they came to a vineyard. And the road was narrow, and as they were going along, the donkey began to act very strange and nearly brushed Balaam off. Balaam didn't like that, so he began to beat the donkey. And uh, they went on a little bit more, and the donkey again acted very strangely and brushed up against the wall. Balaam really got mad. He beat the donkey some more. Well, see, what the donkey saw and Balaam didn't see was the angel of the Lord who stood right in the way. And uh, he was frightened by that. Balaam didn't see that. But as he was beating the donkey, the donkey turned around and spoke to him. Why are you beating me? In essence. Don't you know I'm the donkey you've ridden all these years? Why are you beating me? And uh, you wonder who the donkey is because Balaam responded and answered him. I mean, it's one thing to have a donkey speak to you. It's another to talk to him, to answer him. And then the Lord opened up his eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord then spoke to Balaam. Well, Balaam went on. And when he got there, he went through these elaborate rituals, building altars, and offering sacrifices, but he could not pronounce out of his mouth a curse upon the Israelites. 
try and try and try again, he could not do it. Because God kept putting into his mouth words of blessing upon the people of Israel and judgment upon their enemies. And of course, Balak wasn't real excited about that, king of Moab. And finally, Balaam, because he couldn't pronounce a curse, shared with the king of Moab how he could corrupt the people of God. He said, you go and be a good neighbor to them. And uh, you decide to have a good neighbor policy, and you exchange people, and uh, invite them over to your feasts, and you go to their feasts, and, and get them to commit immorality. And you will compromise them, and you will corrupt them. And he went back home. In chapter 31 of Numbers, you'll read that Balaam was killed. He was executed by God because of, of what he did. God put him to death because of that counsel. Well, that's the historical background now that Peter is picking up on. He says, uh, Balaam, the son of Beor, loved the wages of unrighteousness. You see, he was a prophet for hire. He was a false teacher, a false prophet, and willing to sell his services for the highest bidder. He received rebuke for his own transgression by the donkey, it says here, speaking with the voice of the man. It speaks of the madness of the prophet. The word here means he was just beside himself. Sin is that way. It leads us to insanity of a sort. And Peter now is saying these false teachers who are afflicting you are like Balaam who knew the right way but deliberately forsook it for the wages of unrighteousness. The way of Balaam that is mentioned here is using mercenary greed, whether it be for money or for honor, as a motive for religious service. Allowing greed and covetousness to be the motive. That's the way of Balaam. False teachers have a price. In Jude verse 11, there is a phrase called the error of Balaam, which may be technically different. The error of Balaam may be described as selling oneself for money the making of money out of false religion. And then in Revelation 2.14, he is mentioned again. And there it says that it refers to the teaching of Balaam, which may have been his counsel to Balak to compromise the men of Israel through intermarriage and immorality and idolatry. It was defilement of, of God's people, the forsaking of their command to separation and lifestyle difference the teaching of Balaam. Now, what we're talking about here in, in the, the greed and the immorality and the, the deceit and the teaching to uh, be like the world, all of that is a part of false religion, whether it be mainstream apostate Christianity or it be cults. It's all a part of false religion. But Peter says, if you want to know what false religion is like in your day, 
and it's true of us today as much as it was then, in the first century, go back and look at Balaam. A lot of comparisons, he says. Kenneth Gangle says in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the false teachers, like Balaam, had sinned so long and so intensely that their sin had become a form of insanity. Also today, many people have so thoroughly given themselves over to avarice and debauchery that their lifestyles are spiritually insane. Money and sex, even in the name of religion, continue to bring spiritual ruin to many people. And to my mind, when I read that, comes a preacher in Louisiana. But he's not alone. David Wheaton says in the new Bible commentary revised, Balaam is the prototype of the false teacher who seeks good rewards or popularity by persuading people that God's standards can be lowered. <clears throat> Many of the mainstream churches are, of course, seeking to do this in their national conventions and conferences to say, well, God's word doesn't really say this is wrong or that's wrong. You know, that was for then, this is now. We must interpret it in the light of our culture today and blah, 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 blah. And God's standards are lowered and eventually completely dismissed as being totally out of date. False teaching. False teaching. Now, following the picture from history, Peter says, let me tell you more. He says, consider these pictures from nature, verse 17. He said, they're also like springs that are without water. Of course, in a desert region, an oasis is very important. These caravans would travel for days with their water supplies, aiming towards specific, a specific oasis so that they could replenish their water. And when they would see that uh, oasis coming, they, they marched with, with great uh, expectation of fresh water and being able to fill their supply again. But when they got there, if there was no water, it was great, great danger. They might all die. It was devastation. Peter says that's the way false teachers are. They make promises that they can't deliver. They do not produce what is expected of them. They can give nothing because they have nothing to give. They are bankrupt. They are void of anything spiritual. How opposite of our Lord. By the way, the word he uses here for springs is the same word that Jesus used in, in John chapter 4, where he talks about the spring of living water that he would provide, that he would be. And again in John chapter 7, the living water that that comes out of those that are truly his, but not so of false teachers. Furthermore, he says of them, they are like a mist driven by the storm. Uh, he may be saying about the same thing as he did in the first picture here from nature, that uh, you see a cloud coming, you see this roll cloud, let's say, and you think, oh, we're going to get some rain, and then nothing happens. But I wonder, too, if he isn't talking about uh, a fog, a mist that rolls in. Have you ever seen that in San Francisco? It is one of the most amazing things I have ever in my life seen. It frightened me the first time I saw it. Late one afternoon when the fog came rolling over the, uh, what do they call them? The hills there, down which is the Pacific Ocean. 
The fog apparently builds up on the ocean side of it, and when it gets high enough or whatever, it comes rolling over the hills. It's the most amazing thing, and high winds, 30, 40, 50 miles an hour, bring this fog in like rivers of mist. Well, I wonder if he isn't saying here that these false teachers do not enlighten, rather they obscure, they obscure the minds of people. Uh, like a storm, they are unstable, they are restless, they are transient. They blow with the currents of time. They lack direction. That's why we're commanded in Ephesians chapter 4 that to, to build up one another, to edify one another, so that we are not tossed and driven by the winds. We are to be mature, to grow up. What he's saying here is that these men, this is according to Dr. David Payne, I quote him, these men have no value, no goal, and no future. Say no future, that's right. Because he says, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. The gloom of darkness is what he says. And he's talking about hell. It's the same idea as back in verse 4, where these angels who sinned are being kept. There, he says, in pits of darkness. Here, these false teachers are promised a doom in eternal hell. Their destiny is darkness and judgment because of their false teaching. Pictures from nature. He says, that's not all. He says, I want to give you another picture. And he gives us now a picture from commerce verses 18 to 20. He says, uh, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Now this is, I think, uh, deliberately put here by Peter. What did Peter do before he was an apostle? Fisherman, right, fisherman. This is the word for baiting a hook. So Peter is drawing upon the livelihood that he knew best, the commerce that he understood fishing. And he says that they entice, they bait the hook for people they're trying to get to follow them with fleshly desires and sensuality. They seduce just like you seduce a fish. You don't just throw the hook out there. You put some bait on it to make that fish want to bite. And so it is with false teaching. You don't just throw out false teaching you put something on there that's going to attract people, and people are attracted by fleshly lusts and by sensuality. When I think of this, uh, to use a different picture, I think of uh, a barker at a fair. We went to the Minnesota fair uh, for a few hours this year, and uh, one of my children desired to go down into that farthest region, the nether region of it, where you walk through all of these games and you finally come to the sideshows down there. And these tapes are playing. It didn't used to be tapes. It used to be live. But uh, these tapes are playing. Come in and see this woman whose head was chopped off in an automobile accident. But she is alive. They've been able to keep her alive. See it. 
So did I. <laughs> a few years ago, back when I was in high school, I don't know if it's the same woman or not down at our fair, but I saw her several years ago when I was a kid. I went into this. I thought, my goodness, how can this woman be alive? She has no head. So I went in there, and sure enough, there she was. You say, well, it was just a dummy. No, no, people were tickling her feet, and she was kicking at them. She was real. And then she had this contraption over her, her neck that was breathing for her and causing her heart to beat. Most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. Then the man said, now if you want to see how we do this, pay us another dollar and you'll find out. I thought, hey, I've paid one, why not another? So I stayed to see how they did it. Fascinating. Let me tell you, it was fascinating. Boy, was I a sucker. That wasn't the first time, and I'm sorry to say it wasn't the last time, for the sideshow, but not for some other things. I was enticed into that by a barker who stood out there and said, you cannot believe what's good in here. And that's just the way these false teachers are. Hey, you can't believe this kind of a life. Man, you can be yourself. You can have all the, the fun and games you want to have. And a little religion, too. You can find out the deeper things. You can come to know the Christ who is in you. And you can live, oh, you can have fun. And they bait the hook out there with the kinds of things that entice the natural man. Well, who are the victims of this enticement? He says, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. There are some who feel that these are people who had been enlightened as to Christ, but who had not yet received him. And that's possible. It's also possible he's talking about brand new converts, and I want to understand it that way tonight for an application reason. And that is that often it is people who are brand new converts who are the ones entrapped in false religion and cults. Uh, it, it is amazing how often that is true, that a person will receive Jesus Christ, and within a few days there will be a knock at the door with a couple of people selling magazines. Or something else happens to try to ensnare that person who has just barely escaped sin, to try to ensnare them to come back. It's amazing how many times that happens. The tactics that are used, he describes in verse 18, he says, uh, they use arrogant words of vanity. These, uh, it's interesting, he says, these are words that are just swollen beyond uh, what is natural. They're, they're just weird and bizarre in their, their claims. Kind of reminds you of Shirley, what's her name? Uh, yeah, that's the one. Arrogant words of vanity. And then he says, by fleshly desires. By the way, that was a major problem in the Roman world, as it is in ours today. Uh, it took a lot of patience and time and effort to inculcate Christian ethics in the new believers in Rome. Because uh, immorality was just a part of their whole religion. It was a part of their whole way of life. And so it took time, and so Peter's very concerned that these new babes who are just beginning to get out of this old pattern 
into Christian behavior are now being enticed to come back by false teachers in the name of Christianity. He says they promise freedom. They promise freedom. By freedom, it means here license to sin. Without any restraint on their sinful impulses, uh, he, these teachers are saying there, there is no obligation to you for any kind of discipline. And it's just the opposite of what Peter's been saying in the book. If you're going to go in Christ, you've got to be diligent. You've got to be diligent. You've got to give yourself to it. These other people are saying, don't worry about diligence. Just come on, have a good time. That was attractive. It was effective. But the facts are that these same people who are promising freedom, he says, are themselves slaves of corruption. And he gives us the principle, he says, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And these false teachers were indeed overcome by the very sins that they were baiting the hook with for others. Well, my point tonight in, in bringing this part of the chapter to a close is that we need to be alert because there is so much that is offered today in the name of Christ. Uh, you go into a bookstore like B. Dalton or Walden Books, and you go back and you look at uh, the religion section, or you look at the, the New Age section now, which usually is much larger than the religion section, and you can find just about any doctrine you can imagine in those bookstores. And people are buying that stuff. They're drinking it in. They think that this is real, true religion. We need to be alert to it, to understand that uh, this is a false religion that leads to condemnation. And at the same time, we need to be diligent ourselves to grow in Jesus Christ so that we don't become unwitting victims of this kind of enticement. Well, next time, if the Lord doesn't come first, we'll talk about the parables. He says, for if they have, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Whew. That's tough. We'll talk about it, Lord willing, next Sunday night. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for these words, strong words from Peter warning us. I pray that, that we will not be naive, that you will deliver us from believing every spirit that comes along using the name of Jesus, even those who say Jesus is Lord. God, give us, I pray, discerning minds as our minds are renewed by the word of God. And may we be diligent to grow, grow up in Jesus Christ, and grow up with one another so that we may not be led astray and tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.